Chats from the Blog Cabin. This is your favorite time of the week with your number one one podcast. Welcome back to Cats from the Blog Cabin. You know the show where I virtually invite people into the Blog Cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting all about Santa and about Christmas. Now, before we get started, I want to actually give a kudos because he's a North Carolina resident and I'm a North Carolina resident. I'm on the coast, but he's in the mountains. So welcome, Tom, to the show. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into your book, Santa Claus Worldwide. Thanks. Yeah, I live in Western North Carolina in Asheville, which if you haven't been there is a wonderful town mm-hmm. both to live in and, and for a vacation. Uh, when we uh, decided we were going to look for someplace else to live, I was in uh, uh, Maryland uh, by D.C. And my wife considered the um, eastern coast. She likes the Outer Banks, but I mm-hmm. said, I don't know what that's going to be like in 10 years. Let's go inland. And we fell in love with Asheville. Um, my uh, history, so to speak, I uh, grew up in Utah um, and went to both undergraduate and law school at the University of Utah. After I uh, graduated, I went to work for a very large uh, firm in Los Angeles. I stayed with them for about 25 years, uh, moved to DC halfway through, but just for business reasons. Um, the last five years I worked for another large law firm and then I retired in uh, the end of 2015 and we moved to Asheville and I said, what do I need to do with my life? Something useful and uh, came up with the writing a book. Although it was not initially going to be a book about the history of Santa Claus, it was going to be a guide for Santa collectors, Santa figurines, like you see in back of me. Uh, And that changed when chapter one, uh, I think was titled, A Brief History of Santa Claus, uh, got to about 25, uh, no, about 250 pages. I decided that was no longer brief and we broke it into two books. I love that 250 pages, no longer brief. Because I mean, honestly, there is a lot of history of Santa Claus. What got you so interested in Santa Claus to begin with? Well, uh, my first Santa, other than when I was a small child, we used to get these little wax figures. Uh, I think they were about 10 cents, 15 cents at the local five and dime. And my brother and I used to get those, but they never lasted more than a year because we would light them. Uh, In 1985, basically, I had just gotten married. I lived in Pasadena, California, and we went to a craft fair. And I saw this little uh, figurine. It was about a foot tall, handmade, not at all sophisticated. It was about $15, I think, maybe $10. And I said, I really like him. I want him. Uh, so we bought him and I went home and we put him on the fireplace mantle. Uh, next year, I maybe got two Santas. Next year, maybe three Santas. And uh, about maybe uh, seven to 10 years, I had enough so that I not only filled the mantle, uh, I filled other parts of our home too. And it went on from there. Wow. So Starting out with childhood, was it just Santa just because it reminded you a little bit of your childhood? Or was there something about Santa in particular that really drew you to him? It was something about Santa in particular. I mean, Santa was a part of our childhood, uh, meaning my brothers and sisters like everyone else's. uh, But he was not um, the overwhelming figure that he's become in adulthood. And it's not because I'm in love with Santa in in some way. Uh, like someone might be in love with Harry Potter. It's because I find the whole Santa um, history fascinating. And in particular, the idea that Santa can uh, take on so many different guises. Um, There are 
oh, several dozen to recognize the figures that are winter solstice gift givers. Winter solstice uh, now is on December 21. It used to be on December 25th. Uh, and uh, the remarkable thing about them is they can all be different, but they are all the same. Uh, you know when you're looking at a Santa uh, description that it is, in fact, Santa Claus. There's never any question, um, even though it may not look like all of the others. There is no single feature that defines Santa Claus, but there's a handful of figures. It's what I call in my book a family resemblance. If you get some of this and some of this and some of this, you may not need the beard and so on. Mm -hmm. And that just fascinated me as, as a uh, matter of, of logic. How could this be? And my collecting focused on uh, figures that were different than anything I ever had. So I had um, 30 different kinds of materials that were used. I had from half an inch to five feet. I've got short, uh, tall, round, skinny, uh, happy, sad, mean, friendly, you name it, and I've got it. I've got about 4,500 right now, figurines and ornaments. And that does not count the uh, postcards I have that are um, from around 1,900. I've probably got four or 5,000 of those. Wow. So how do you store all that? Because obviously we just talked right before we came on that you were waiting for Halloween to get over with and you were going to bring down all the Santas because the ones behind you, you said, weren't even 1% of what you have. Yeah, this is a little bit embarrassing. Uh, the um, When we moved to Asheville, I initially rented a storage unit. It was about 4,000 square feet. It was way more than I needed, but it was plenty of space to unwrap these these uh, figurines. I had rented three 20-foot U-Haul trucks, just literally filled to the brim mm -hmm. with boxes and bins. And we drove those down, we emptied them, and I spent, along with a, a, a helper, uh, probably, I don't know, three or four months sorting them and arranging them. And eventually I decided it was getting way too expensive to pay for a storage unit. Um, and so we had a carpenter that was a good friend, um, had done work on our house. And one day we walked up into the attic and he said, I can turn this into a complete beautiful room at not very much money. And I said, go for it. And he did. And, uh, so he built what is essentially a fourth story on our home in Asheville. Uh, and we have brought everything in and we filled that with uh, uh, Santa figurines and ornaments. It's not enough. It's about a thousand square feet. It's not enough to display them, which is unfortunate because I would like to be able to do that. Uh, but it's enough to store them all comfortably in boxes wow. and bins. Well, are you still collecting them too? Or are you kind of being having a little bit of discernment of what you actually get now? Uh, the latter, um, in part because I don't have any place to put them. And come Christmas time, there are always um, lots of Santas that I really love, but I can't find any place to put them. So I don't really need them for decorative purposes. Um, and I've been focusing my efforts on writing since uh, really a little bit before I uh, retired from the practice of law. Well, so where exactly did you find these Santas at? You said the original one that you found that you first started collecting was at a craft fair in Pasadena, but where do you find the ones that you are collecting now? Well, let me, um, you know, beginning uh, 35 years ago, um, I, the main place I would always look was year-round Christmas stores. Every good uh, vacation town has one or two Christmas stores, and they generally sell a lot of ornaments with the town's name on them. Uh, you know, Virginia Beach, you can get them with little crabs on them. You're probably familiar with those. 
Um, and they all have uh, some uh, type of Santa figurines I, I could buy or ornaments. And so that was uh, for a long, long time, the main place I purchased uh, figurines. Um, as time went on, I discovered antique stores, which um, can often yield some, some cool finds. Uh, the craft fairs, um, Christmas fairs, every town of any size has a, a Christmas uh, uh, purchase festival uh, every December. And that was always a good place to look, particularly for handmade uh, Santas, uh, we call them folk art. Um, but, but in some ways those are my favorite where you've got a single individual, they're not officially an artist, but they, they make beautiful work. Um, and then about 10 years ago, I joined an organization called the Golden Glow of Christmas Past. Um, the Glow, sadly, the last two years has been forced to cancel its uh, summer convention because of COVID. Uh, we're all really crossing our fingers that we can go back uh, next year. But the Glow is, I think in terms of members, probably 1,500 to 2,000, somewhere in there. But has a summer convention every year that last few years has gotten, I don't know, about 750 attendees. And these are all... Uh, Christmas decoration uh, aficionados. They're not necessarily Santa uh, oriented, but they have lights, they have ornaments, they have you name it. And the glows rules had always been, it's gotta be at least 50 years old to display it at our convention. Um, they had auctions, they had uh, displays, um, they had handmade stuff that you could purchase even though it wasn't 50, year old, 50 years old. And they had something we call room hopping. Room hopping was at the uh, hotel where the convention was being held. And every evening, the people who weren't interested, and there was always, uh, you know, at least several dozen people who would open up their rooms and display that portion of their collection they wanted to sell. And you would go from room to room to room, and you could find anything uh, you wanted. I never came away from room hopping without uh, uh, a number of things I wanted and a number of things that I just didn't think I should afford at that point in time. Wow, that sounds so interesting. And I want to get into it a little bit more. Can, can I just mention one thing, which is people who are interested, who really love um, antique or, or, or vintage Santa materials should go online and search the Golden Glow Christmas Past. It'll tell them how to join. There's a great uh, uh, magazine that comes out six times a year. There's the annual convention. It really is something I would highly recommend. That sounds totally awesome. And we'll be right back after a brief commercial break. Chats from the blog cabin. Subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Branding yourself begins with self reflection. Taking stock of your strengths. Is there a particular talent that helps you shine? In this series, founder of Pierre Branding Group, Lydia Pierre, sits down with the executives and entrepreneurs to shed light on why it is important to brand yourself and get ahead. And we are back chatting with Tom, who wrote Santa Claus Worldwide. And we were just talking about your collection of Santas, which actually 
you put into started writing about collecting Santas and ended up being a history of Santa Claus in this book. Now, what other names does Santa Claus go by? Because most of the time in America, we know Santa. Um, you name it, if you don't mind, I will uh, refer to my book here, which has a long list. Um, uh, Father Christmas, Père Noël in France, uh, Weihnachtsmann in Germany, Dead Moritz in, in Russia, uh, Claus in, Ner in uh, the Netherlands, Dutch area, um, Joel Pukki, uh, Maden, Yolnise in Scandinavia, and St. Nicholas, there's about 20 different uh, versions of the name St. Nicholas, depending on local languages, because saint is not part of his name. It's just whatever makes uh, a saint. And every every uh, language has a different version of the word Nicholas. So um, there are a lot. And that's one of the wonderful things is that there are all these different names for what may or may not be the same person. One of the things I try to emphasize to people is that our Santa Claus, the American Santa Claus, is not St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was a uh, saint. He was um, born, uh, according to custom, in the middle of the fourth century. Um, there is no history of him for about 300 years. It's not until about 700 AD that he begins to emerge. And then in about uh, 1100, 1200 AD, uh, the church, and it means the Catholic church in this place, in this case, uh, it uh, uh, decided that they wanted to displace the existing winter solstice or Christmas uh, gift giver, uh, which was um, Odin, uh, in, in uh, Northern Europe, a pagan god with a Christian figure. And it happened that St. Nicholas's feast day was December 6th. And because of a little quirk in the calendar, the winter solstice by that point was only a week or 10 days away. So uh, he seemed the logical uh, uh, choice. He had become very famous, um, not for things he had done uh, while he was alive, although there's lots of stories about that, but because of what happened to his bones after he died, they were interred in uh, Myra, a city in western Turkey, and the Italian city of uh, Bari sent a, a boatload of uh, sailors and, and, and uh, soldiers to uh, steal them, brought them back to Italy because they wanted them in a, in a Christian uh, uh, nation, and, and Turkey by that point had become a Muslim nation. So they stole him back, and that's what made him famous. Sort of like the Mona Lisa became famous because it was stolen, not because of some inherent thing about the picture. Wow. That, that brings me to a point. You keep saying that our American Santa Claus is not like the Santa Claus that people see around the world. So what other misconceptions do, would we see that, you know, we see him in a red jolly suit. He's a fat old man. He's jolly. But what other countries, what other um, ways does Santa portrayed in other countries? Right, yeah. First of all, the, the American Santa has become um, very common, uh, predominant worldwide, a lot of nations that had their own figures of sort of transition to the American Santa Claus, just like everything else in the world, people tend to look to America to set fashions. And so Santa is become more common. Um, but the the different figures, Russia has dead morals. Dead morals is not a Christmas gift giver. Um, the Russian uh, government during or following the, the uh, communist revolution in 1917 was atheist. And so they would not uh, allow a saint to uh, participate. So St. Nicholas was out. Um, and they came up with um, Dead Moroz, which is Grandfather Winter or Grandfather Snow, depending on the translation. And the Russian celebration is actually a celebration of wintertime. Uh, other nations have them. American cities have, you know, festivals of, of, of winter. But that is the primary festival in Russia. 
um, in uh, the southern uh, part of the Americas, Central and South America, and in Spain at the Christmas time, you have uh, what they call the three kings, uh, uh, more commonly known, I think, is the Magi mm -hmm. or the three wise men. But they come on the night before Epiphany. Epiphany is a Christian holiday. It means coming out, and it's traditionally thought to be the day that uh, baby Jesus was sort of introduced to the world because the wise men uh, came. So that's a different form. Um, Germany is the most like um, the American Santa. We really took our um, uh, vision of Santa from the Germans, although we dressed ours up a little bit. In Germany, there had been two types of gift givers. There had been St. Nicholas, who was popular in the uh, Catholic regions, but there was what we call the terror men or the boogeyman that were popular in the Protestant region regions that Protestantism, if you're not familiar with it, uh, did not like Catholicism and it would not allow Catholic saints to be involved in their services. So uh, they came up with a secular figure. He was initially very frightening looking. Um, he had uh, several dozen different names locally, but they all had long, dirty hair and beards they wore. Uh, uh, pelts or furs. They carried traditionally a handful of birch switches to deal with bad kids. Uh, and they could come anytime between the beginning of December and, and Christmas Eve. And it was that figure that was really adopted in 1821 by a New York printer named William Gilly. And he created a book about Santa Claus, mm. uh, spelled slightly different, but it was nonetheless a, a word they'd taken from the German uh, to denote in some region of Germany, these figures. Um, and uh, that book didn't do very well. Um, <laughs> I can imagine not. <laughs> it, it was mean-spirited. It made Santa Claus into a disciplinarian, not a, not a well-loved figure. Um, but one person who did buy a copy, we're fairly sure, was a professor at uh, General Theological Seminary, uh, which is a, a, a basically a college to produce ministers in the Episcopal Church, which was the predominant English church. And his name was Clement C. Moore. He was very wealthy. He was extremely well-educated. And um, although some have tried to raise an issue about this, you know, 150 years after the fact, uh, Historians uniformly uh, agree that uh, he wrote in 1822, the night before Christmas. But the story of Santa coming and the critical element was in a sleigh pulled by flying reindeer. That was not just coincidence that two people uh, uh, thought that up at the same time, particularly when they lived about 90 feet from each other. So we believe that uh, Clement Moore bought the book. He found it to be mean-spirited as well. And he rewrote the story as a warm, uh, family-friendly story in which Santa was a lovable figure. And he didn't publish it himself. He, he thought that it was a nursery rhyme and it was beneath his dignity as a, as a scholar. But he uh, read it to his family and some friends on Christmas Eve in 1822, a year after it was published. And one of them, uh, we don't know for sure who, uh, took it to the Troy, New York Sentinel, the local newspaper in Troy, and gave it to the editor, um, Oliver um, Holly, and he published it anonymously, um, wrote a wonderful uh, introduction about what an important figure this was, even though no one had ever heard of him before. And that poem got published year after year in multiple uh, small town newspapers, almanacs, and after several decades, it had become a well-known poem. And after you know, uh, six or eight decades, it had become America's favorite uh, uh, poem. And it told the story of, of Santa Claus from soup to nuts. That is everything 
that we um, think about Santa Claus is in the night before Christmas. That is that is so cool. And the fact that he thought it was beneath him, and now it's probably the most popular, the most thing that he's most remembered for. That's that's the funny yeah, it, it, it's a quandary that that um, has become a subject of a lot of discussion. It's very interesting. I point out, I should say, I will point out in my next book that um, the original author had a copyright. And so he may not have been legally able to publish the poem. He didn't want to publish the poem. Mm. In 1836, however, the copyright had expired. And he, that year, authorized a, an editor in New York to include um, what was then called A Visit from St. Nicholas mm -hmm. uh, and a couple other of his poems in a compilation of poetry by New York poets. And so 1836 on, he acknowledged he was the author, although he didn't push it, if you will. He didn't, he didn't beat his own drum. He was a very modest man, despite being extraordinarily well-educated and really, really wealthy. Um, his uh, yard, if you will, was, uh, with his, his manor house on it, was the New York neighborhood they call Chelsea. That entire uh, uh, area of New York was his house. Gives wow. you a how wealthy he was. Wow. When you were researching this book, was there one story that was like really stood out to you that you really thought was really interesting? Or it was like the aha moment that you say, I never knew this because obviously collecting Santa's through all this time and you had the backstory a little bit on it. Was there one point, one particular story though? There, there is one story. Um, th there are several that are very interesting, but the one that sort of uh, hit me in the heart, if you understand what I mean, is one involving uh, William Gilly and the book I mentioned. It's called The Children's Friend, and that's how I usually refer to it. Um, but it features Santa Claus, and the, the, the uh, verse is not great, but the story is wonderful. Uh, well, one person bought it and gave it to a young man named Stephen Salisbury III. He was six years old, lived in uh, uh, Worcestershire, Massachusetts, and I'm sure I butchered their name. I apologize for people in Massachusetts. Uh, but um, his father was president or became president uh, of something called the um, American Antiquarian Society. The goal of the society is to collect and preserve all written documents uh, created in America up to about, I think, 1860. So it is the one institution whose goal is to save written documents, no matter how significant they may or may not seem at the time. And little six-year-old uh, uh, Stephen, uh, saved his document because his father was president of the American Antiquarian Society. Well, as it turns out, um, after his father died in the 1880s, Stephen uh, III um, became president of the American Antiquarian Society. He died in 1908 and donated all of his you know, hundreds of boxes of, of saved works to the society in, in the uh, 1930s, the staff was going through and they found this booklet. Initially, they didn't realize how significant it was, but in the 1840s, it, someone there uh, realized it was the original and about the only copy of a booklet that defined Santa Claus in America. And it was all because of a six-year-old boy who uh, saved it and donated it when he died. And so it really illustrates the importance of organizations like that that preserve our history. But for this little boy's action, we wouldn't know. Yeah, and I know parents that are listening to this are probably saying, maybe I shouldn't tell little Johnny or little Susie to throw away all the stuff that they get because you never know. <laughs> It's absolutely right. You know, particularly when you're talking about collectibles, 
what now um, go for pretty good prices, some for pretty amazing prices, um, are things that were given to little Johnny 30 to 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that they saved and that they turned out to be quite valuable. So it's not just the documents, it's the figurines and so on. If they're kept in good shape, uh, they can eventually become very valuable. You have to build another store to your house to keep them all, <laughs> perhaps. But, you know, it can be uh, very fulfilling as well. Now, you mentioned earlier that you said your next book. So are you planning on writing another book about Santa? Uh, yes. I, I've actually written the first draft. It's in the process of being edited. Um, I've tentatively called it The Fight for the Night. I don't know if the publisher will let me use that. Uh, title they did not let me use the title I wanted for the last <laughs> book, but um, and it is the story of who actually wrote the night before Christmas for a hundred and maybe seventy five years it was uniformly believed uh, among historians, folklorists, Christmas experts that it was written by Clement Moore. Clement Moore claimed authorship, albeit not for fifteen years, but. Nobody else ever claimed uh, authorship, or at least credibly. And uh, he published it under his name beginning in 1836. All of his children say he wrote it. People who were, were in the um, publishing industry, editors in New York City where he lived, all say he wrote it. Um, no one else, and particularly Henry Livingston Jr., ever claimed credit for it, but the great, 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 great grandchildren of Henry Livingston decided in the late 1800s into the early 1900s that the poem had actually been written by Henry, who was a, a farmer in Poughkeepsie, New York. The only evidence they have is that they I shouldn't say they all, a handful of them say, well, I was told by my grandmother that she was told by her grandmother that that uh, great, great, great grandfather Henry really wrote that poem. Uh, whereas there was all this documentary evidence for, for more. Um, there's no copies of it. There's no there's nothing that would be considered evidence in a court of law. And after 35 years that I'm pretty comfortable uh, saying. Um, but nonetheless, um, there have been two authors in the past um, 23 years, I guess, uh, that have claimed um, Henry Livingston actually wrote the book. One of them was a Vassar College professor who claimed to be an expert in authorship uh, attribution. The other one is a professor from uh, the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And they've both written a book uh, claiming it was actually Henry Livingston. Not that there's any historical evidence, but they've done uh, what they claim are analyses of the you know, internal uh, uh, words in the document that, well, you know, Henry used the word uh, such and such, and he never, uh, Moore never used that. A good example, the very last line in The Night Before Christmas is, happy Christmas to all. And they say, that's very unusual. And uh, uh, Henry used it in the only uh, uh, letter we have from him about Christmas. He said, happy Christmas. So that's proof Henry did it. And we've shown that uh, it was more common than you think, but it was particularly common among uh, ministers. And happy means good. Merry means drunken. And so uh, that's how Merry Christmas came to, to denote the, the uh, uh, alcohol-induced celebration of Christmas. Happy was the, the term uh, that the ministers would use, and, and we can document that pretty well. And uh, Clement Moore's father was the Episcopal Bishop of New York. He, Clement Moore... Uh, his father was also a, a minister before he came bishop and was, was um, president of what was called Columbia College at the time, since Columbia University. Um, so that's 
the term that he was likely to use. Mm. Wow. How did you go about getting all this research? I mean, obviously, you probably poured over research for, I assume, years of when you were collecting your sandals and along all to actually pour, put it into the book. Well, I did all the research myself. Um, I had, as a lawyer, been um, used to sometimes having uh, associates of the law firm do a lot of the research, um, but I always believed um, I could do a more thorough job because I was more emotionally invested in, in getting it done. And so the la I, I retired at the end of 2015. Um, shortly after I retired, I started uh, getting into the research. I would buy books from uh, Amazon.com used. And, excuse me, remarkable how many books you could buy for one cent plus $3.99 in shipping. So it's like $4 a book. And so I bought every book I could find on Christmas and they had a lot. And um, I eventually filled up two bookshelves about six feet tall, three feet wide. So it's six feet total uh, with six shelves. Um, of books about Christmas. And, and I read every book in English um, about Christmas of any significance. You know, I wish I would have uh, spoken or been able to read uh, German because uh, there are some books I'm aware of and there are some books I bought in German. And I was able to use a uh, German professor at the University of uh, North Carolina at Asheville to uh, translate uh, some of what were the critical parts, but it would have been nice to to be able to do that myself. But essentially, I did all the research myself. It took me about uh, four or five years um, and eventually got the final product and got it published with a North Carolina publisher. First of all, there's two questions to that. First of all, I want to ask you what your wife thinks about this, because obviously you just talked about you had to add a whole story to your floor. You just talked about two of these big, humongous bookcases full of all these books. What does your wife think about this, this um, collection of yours? My wife is a wonderful, giving uh, person, and she has been nothing but supportive throughout all of this. Um, and I don't say that just because she'll probably <laughs> watch this. Uh, she's really a wonderful, sweet person, and she's she's been very supportive, um, sometimes more so than me in terms of wanting to uh, build places to put them and display them. She decided we really should uh, this year bring them out at the beginning of November instead of the end of November because I've been doing shows like this and it's nice for for people to be able to see the actual uh, santa closets so um she comes to the golden glow conventions um she's not, nothing but but supportive i love that and the second of all, daughter, or daughters okay. two daughters um second of all you just talked about publishing with a north carolina publisher how important is that to stay kind of in your home state or in your home state now not where you're originally from i you know I, frankly it's not that critical um the publisher mcfarland and company is a publisher that specializes in what they call academic uh works and what that means is they take subjects that are not of great popularity in uh, scholarly uh, circles, but are done in a scholarly manner. So they have a huge collection of books on things like uh, car racing, uh, baseball, mm -hmm. um, uh, the Civil War. I mean, every uh, uh, time a Confederate soldier burped, somebody has written a book about it. And, they published a lot of that. Um, so that's their niche, and, and they thought Santa uh, fit within that niche. I love that. So how did you go about finding your publisher? Um, I think that um, I saw, found them initially through 
uh, one of the books that uh, focuses on uh, publishers, editors, uh, um, other professionals that would be useful mm -hmm. for a writer. And so these books have uh, summaries of everyone in the industry and you know you go through it and I came across that publisher and said, they look like someone who would be interested. And critically, they were they were willing to accept um, uh, proposals for books that did not have an agent involved. And I did not have an agent. Um, and I could have continued to look for an agent, but once I found some publisher that was willing to publish it without an agent, that was good enough for me. I didn't, I didn't uh, uh, press the issue. So uh, they were interested. Um, they made a couple of, of important uh, recommendations, both of which I concurred. And they were really things like splitting apart the history of Santa from the collector's guide. And then later the history of Santa from who wrote The Night Before Christmas. And we mutually decided those were really three separate books. And so I am, Finishing up, hopefully in the next uh, uh, few months, uh, the Who Wrote the Night Before Christmas book. And then I plan to um, go to the um, Guide for Collectors. Although you would be surprised how much time it takes to promote a book. Uh, <laughs> you've got to go around to different uh, uh, conventions. You go on different shows. You do a lot of things to make sure people are aware of the book. One of the the, the um, uh, downsides of, of of McFarland is they don't their books are not generally shown in big um, brick and mortar bookstores. They sell on the web, um, and selling on the web is great for people who know what they want. Yeah, it's not so good for people trying to sell a book that no one's ever heard of. You need some other uh, way to promote it, whereas if you um, go to Barnes and Noble and they have a, a display of Christmas books and they uh, can stack 10 or 15 uh, copies of your book, people will see it, pick it up, read it, and buy it on the spot without ever having uh, a, um, without ever having someone, you know, told them to buy it. And so, that would be helpful. So if anybody from Barnes and Noble out there is listening, you know, let's get the book in the stores. Now let's talk about, you just mentioned about having, you know, people being able to know your book is out there. COVID, has COVID hurt that at all? Have you not been able to go to conventions and things like that? So let's talk about, you know, some of the things that you would have conventionally done, some of the things that now you have to kind of think outside of the box. You're absolutely right. Um, for the year 2000, the conventions that would have started in the spring, American Librarians Association, the American Folklore Society, um, the Golden Globe Christmas Pass, mm -hmm. though conventions were all canceled. And those are the best opportunity for an independent uh, uh, author uh, to get his work or her work published. Uh, and we were hopeful that come 2001, you know, everything would be uh, hunky-dory. It's a word from Utah where I grew up. <laughs> and, um, it didn't turn out that way, as you know. Um, it was, if anything, worse in terms of the level of infection and so on. So um, the one difference is some of those uh, organizations uh, did virtual conventions. Mm -hmm. Um, but virtual conventions don't really serve the same purpose. There's no exhibit hall where people can wander around and see you and you can shake their hand and say, look, I'm selling this book. And, and so that's, a, that's an impediment uh, to sales. Um, lately, there have been some open up to in-person conventions. Last week, I was in Salt Lake City, Utah for the American Association of School Librarians Convention. And but for the fact that a certain airline canceled my flight and I was not able to get to Pennsylvania, 
um, I would have been at the American Folklore Society's mm. in-person uh, uh, convention last week. I, I won't say their name, but their initials are A. -A. <laughs> I love that you won't say the name. And I'm assuming you probably would have sold a lot at the folklore convention. Yeah, Santa yeah. is huge folklore. Yeah, yeah, it was unfortunate. Now, do you ever see yourself writing non, I mean, other anything other than nonfiction? No. Um, it's funny because the past two weeks I spent a lot of time with, with editors, with publishers, with you know, people... Um, who publish nonfiction. And as much as I might enjoy it, I don't have the either the imagination or the desire to go out and do that. Um, I could see myself writing nonfiction stuff in areas completely um, separate from Santa Claus. Uh, I've got a great, great grandfather, um, myself, who spent interesting uh, history um, in Utah, um, that could be could be an interesting story. Wow, it does sound interesting. So what is up next for you besides writing the book about um, who wrote The Night Before Christmas? Well, that is, that is um, a pretty big what's up next. I mean, it's uh, surprising how much work goes into publishing a book, even after you've done the research in a, in a first draft, uh, there's still a lot of work, more so if you've got a lot of pictures as I did, because we had to get um, releases from all of the uh, people who uh, had the originals. But um, the uh, Night Before Christmas book will not require that, um, but the collector's guide will require a lot of extra um, uh, work in terms of, of preparing the manuscript. At that point, we'll see. Um, it could be two, three, four years before the final one gets out, and then you can add on another year for uh, promotion, and so it may be um, uh, that that's as far as I want to go. I also have a website, which I think you've been uh, putting mm -hmm. in on. We put this together um with with uh, help of a, a, a tech guy in um, North Carolina as well and he did a wonderful uh, uh, job his name is Drake Ledoux and he um, we, we, we have in there pictures of essentially every type of Santa we could identify from uh, prehistoric uh, pagan gods to the work of Thomas Nast in the late uh, uh, 1800s. So if you're interested in just looking at the pictures with a little bit of description, it's a, it's a good source, got reviews, we've got, you know, uh, basically everything we could think of that someone would like as a reader or potential reader of the book. You can also buy the book at 25% off at the website. I love that. So I know you also have a Twitter. So what is your Twitter? Um, my Twitter is essentially the same thing as the website. When we put something on new, we put it in Facebook, in Twitter, and uh, on the website. So it's a, a and, and um, I'm, I, I'm showing my ignorance here about all of the social media uh, uh, venues, which means I'm over 60. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody over 60 is not going to understand things like uh, uh, the, the websites that are focused on photos and things like that. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of others that uh, we push the uh, content through so people on those sites can, can see what we're about. Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk about Santa Claus Worldwide. And I'm hoping that one day you open up a store where you are a, a museum where you display all your beautiful Santas. You know, I would love to do that if I could figure out a, a, uh, a way to do it that wasn't more expensive than I, I wanted to spend. I actually thought about that before we decided to build 
fourth story on the house. It really is a, a fourth story. I also, when you hold up the book, I, it, it reminded me that one of the, the, the um, nice things we got was a, an organization called the Independent Publishers um, uh, Program has an annual uh, program where they award gold medals, silver medals, and so on. And about 60 different categories. And we won the gold medal in uh, holiday books, meaning they have judged it the best holiday book released uh, this year. So I'm proud of that. Yes, you should be proud of it. I mean, it's it's a lot of detail, but I also love the, the pictures that you have in there as well. And I would honestly say that this would be a great um, thing to read with your kids as well to give them a little brief history behind Santa. Maybe not little, little kids because they would totally be you know, the the mystery of Santa would be, but like the older kids to say, hey, look, let's start this. Like, maybe right after Thanksgiving, let's start reading about Santa. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of uh, the school librarians that mentioned last week ask me what grades it was appropriate for. And I said, high schoolers should have no problem. Elementary kids are not going to be able to read it unless they're like Matilda. Um, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that story. Um, but um, that doesn't mean you can't read it and tell them about it. But but it's really, um, if there's a prime market in my mind, it's people who work like me, and I think like you, who are interested in Christmas and history and how things came about, you know, who, who, who wonder what is the difference between St. Nicholas and Santa Claus who have... Uh, any interest in how this all developed. Um, this is, um, I think, the first and only comprehensive history that covers all of the bases, geographically, historically, um, uh, different nations, and so on. Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And guys, I will put in the show notes everywhere you can find Santa Claus Worldwide, as well as where you can find Tom. Um, once again, Tom, thank you for coming on and sharing about Santa. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the invitation, and I've enjoyed being here. Okay, guys, remember, be blessed, and most importantly, keep chatting. Chats from the Blog Cabin. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode.